More fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank as Credit Suisse plans to borrow as much as $54 billion to stabilize itself. It's Thursday, March 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the uncertainty surrounding some banks could slow down the American economy, and some economists say that's not bad news. Consumers are likely to cut back or become more price sensitive and bargain more, and that's how we bring inflation down. Plus, the arguments in a Texas courtroom over whether to take an abortion pill off the market. It's a case that could have a nationwide impact. And this hour. As we begin to build out this secretary, I want to let the veteran community know that we have their back. I talk with our state's first cabinet-level veteran secretary, John Santiago, about the most important issues facing the 300,000 veterans in Massachusetts. Increasing clouds today in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The Pentagon has released a video showing a Russian military jet close to a U.S. military drone. The video is edited, but U.S. officials say it shows the Russian jet dumping fuel and it shows a damaged drone propeller. The U.S. says this incident caused the drone to crash into the Black Sea on Tuesday. The Biden administration is demanding that Chinese-owned video app TikTok be sold or face a potential nationwide ban. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the move comes after White House officials rejected TikTok's plan for safeguarding Americans' data. For two years, top national security officials led by the Treasury Department have been examining TikTok. Their focus has been on whether the data of 100 million Americans are properly safeguarded from the Chinese Communist Party. TikTok responded by pledging to spend $1.5 billion to create a new entity overseen by the Texas software company Oracle but that its Chinese company, ByteDance, would still own TikTok. Now the Biden administration has rejected that offer. Officials are now demanding that TikTok be sold or face a ban. A TikTok spokeswoman says the company is disappointed in the outcome. It's not clear what kind of deadline TikTok is under to sell, but TikTok's CEO is set to testify in Washington next week. Bobby Allen, NPR News. On Wall Street, stock futures are trading mixed this morning before the opening bell. European markets are higher after the Swiss government announced it would support troubled bank Credit Suisse. This comes after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy says he is puzzled about the sudden collapses because those banks' financial data were publicly available. This is not really rocket science. So, and obviously people made money off of that. Why didn't the regulators pick it up? The federal government is covering deposits in those two banks. The women's institution, Wellesley College in Massachusetts, says it does not plan to change its admissions policy. That's despite a student vote to accommodate transgender men. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, Wellesley says that it is staying true to its mission as an all-women's school. In the words of one student, the purpose of their historically women's college was to offer a safe space to those who suffer under the patriarchy. So as junior Clara Chambers put it, that should include transgender men as well. I think it's important to recognize that there are other people who share similar struggles to us and can exist with us in a way that doesn't actually infringe on any of the benefits that we get out of having a quote-unquote women's college. College President Paula Johnson says Wellesley will do more to recognize diversity on campus, but will continue to admit only students who, quote, consistently identify and live as women. Tovia Smith, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. 
from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts health officials say they're starting to treat COVID more like other viruses. The state's public health emergency will end in May, and that means state employees will no longer have to be vaccinated against COVID. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the shift comes three years after the start of the pandemic. Health and Human Services Secretary Kate Walsh says it's time to update the state's pandemic response because COVID looks like it's here to stay. We have learned how to live with this and work with this and keep schools open and worship with this and go to bars and football games. Walsh says the end of the public health emergency won't prevent the state from ramping up testing or vaccinations if there's another surge. We certainly know how to do it, so I think we'll be able to do that. COVID cases in Massachusetts have been declining since the start of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Theal McCluskey. The state auditor is pushing forward with her plans to audit the state legislature. Diana DiZoglio announced last week that she wants to do the first audit of Beacon Hill in a century. But she says since then, she hasn't heard from House or Senate leadership. DiZoglio told WBUR's Radio Boston that she's trying to get meetings set up this week. Hopefully the legislature will respond to those requests for meetings and work together with us again to help residents to be able to get access to what's going on at Beacon Hill so that all families in Massachusetts have access to and accountability from all state agencies, regardless of family background, bank balance or zip code. Tizaglio says her audit will focus on hiring and spending. Newton City leaders warn they may have to cut some services for residents, including mental health resources. That follows the decision Tuesday by voters to reject a proposal to raise property taxes by around $9 million. Greg Reben is the president of the Charles River Regional Chamber. He says he's pleased with the vote's outcome. We just felt that right now is not the right time to increase the budget. And we hope that, you know, the economy will turn around in a couple of years. The scenario will be different. Voters did approve spending to upgrade two of the city's elementary schools. A group of parents in Worcester is pushing for a day without homework. The group wants public schools in the city to have at least one day each week where no homework is assigned by teachers. Supporters tell the Telegram and Gazette it would cut down on busy work given by teachers. The school committee will take up the idea tonight. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Celtics beat the Timberwolves 104-102 to last night in Minneapolis. The Seas will visit the Portland Trail Blazers tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Winnipeg Jets. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll get to the upper 40s, mostly cloudy tonight, with temperatures in the 30s, more clouds tomorrow, but warmer. It should get into the lower 50s. We could see a little rain tomorrow afternoon into Saturday morning. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 7.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Look at the financial markets over the last few days, and you see a general slide downward. Which is hardly a crash, but does suggest uncertainty after the collapse of two regional banks in California and New York. Yesterday, concerns about a big Swiss bank 
sparked a sell-off in both the United States and in Europe, which prompts a question. Do we need to worry about more than just the banks? NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now to try to answer that. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Explain the ripple effects here. How does a pair of bank failures end up causing slower economic growth across the whole country? It just sparked a lot of uncertainty, uh, even though U.S. officials acted quickly to limit the damage and reassure depositors that their money is safe. There's just some lingering concern about the, the, the problems being more widespread. And, of course, that was amplified yesterday by worries about this big Swiss bank. Now, stock and Credit Suisse rebounded today after that bank got a lifeline from the Swiss Central Bank. But Goldman Sachs is predicting the ongoing tension is going to make banks more cautious about the loans they make. And that cutback in credit could lead to slower economic growth. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspective says it's part of what the Federal Reserve has been trying to achieve with its higher interest rates. Consumers are likely to cut back or become more price sensitive and bargain more. And that's how we bring inflation down. Yesterday, the Commerce Department reported that retail sales in February were down, suggesting that shoppers are getting more cautious after a big jump in spending in January. And what is the Fed's role here? The Fed's got two jobs here, uh, fighting inflation, of course, and safeguarding the stability of the financial system. And it's kind of a coin toss which one's going to get top billing when Fed officials meet next week. People who think fighting inflation is top of mind for the central bank expect the Fed to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point. But rising interest rates were one of the contributing factors in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. So those who are most worried about financial stability think the Fed might pause and keep interest rates where they are next week. That tug of war has been playing out in the betting markets uh, all week as analysts try to decide which is the more urgent priority for the Fed. And the interest rates are sort of the short-term job that the Fed needs to get done. What are the longer-term things that can be done to address all these issues in the banking system? President Biden said on Monday that he wants Congress and bank regulators to put stronger rules in place to prevent the kind of problems that brought down Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says part of the problem was that 2018 law that rolled back some of the strict rules put in place after the financial crisis. Warren wants to tighten those rules again, so banks the size of Silicon Valley are put through regular stress tests. Stress tests are there, call it general health checkups. They check your heart, they check your liver, they check your kidneys, because any of them can bring down a bank. It was a mistake to take them away, we gotta put them back. But Republicans, like Senator Kevin Kramer, say not so fast. Uh, The North Dakota lawmaker says he doesn't want a national fix for what he says may have been a localized problem. The tendency to rush could be counterproductive. At the same time, somehow we have to create calm where column doesn't exist, particularly if it's unwarranted alarm. So legislative changes look like kind of a long shot, but the Federal Reserve is looking at its own role and how Fed supervisors failed to spot the problems at Silicon Valley Bank and what the Fed might do differently in the future. Uh, The central bank's promised a public report in about six weeks. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, Scott referred to the debate over bank regulations that Congress has approved and also changed from time to time. So let's slow that down, give a kind of timeline here. The government started performing those so-called stress tests about a decade ago after the financial crisis, looking over a bank's books and asking, do they have the resources on hand to survive some bad news? 
In 2018, then, Congress did tweak which banks got the tests, among other things. Republican Senator Mike Rounds is on the Senate Banking Committee. He's been part of these debates, and he joins us once again. Senator, good morning. Hey, good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. I'm glad you're back with us once again. Is this correct that Silicon Valley Bank did not receive a recent stress test to make sure that it could handle a setback? What we know is, is that they were subject to what, what we would identify as the periodic stress test, but we don't know when the last stress test was completed. The, uh, the uh, regulators have the ability in this particular category from $100 billion to $250 billion to do periodic stress tests, and, and that's important to do. Um, they can, at their discretion, ask for more frequent stress tests, we don't know right now whether or not they had asked for that. I'm, I'm a little baffled that that wouldn't be known. You'd think someone could check their email and tell you. Well, and, and in this particular case, we've asked for a number of different items, in, in, including a, a review of whether or not all of their Form 2052As, which are the basically the liquidity monitoring reports, have been delivered up to date, and whether or not those were, were actually reviewed, and if there had been any recommendations made back to the uh, the bank itself. The Roosevelt Institute, which is a liberal think tank, tries to put together their view of what happened here, and they assert that the Silicon Valley Bank was effectively a smaller bank, that you relieved from these regulations in 2018, but then grew very big very rapidly, and it seems that is why they may not have received a stress test, because they had grown big enough for a stress test very quickly. Does that sound like it could be true? Uh, possibly, except that uh, this was back in 2019, they were about a $70 billion bank. They grew to about a $211 billion bank by 2022. So during that, that time frame, they went to an under $100, $100 billion to over $100 billion. Uh, and, and in doing so, uh, they may very well have been in a position to where the, the, the uh, regulators either said, we'll catch it at a different date or we're not worried about it yet. Or perhaps they simply looked at it and said, um, you know, maybe we're going to do a more comprehensive report at a later time. Uh, the real question for us is, is uh, does the Fed think that the regulatory environment that they had established for the bank, was it accurate? Was it the right one? Uh, sec or, uh, the vice chair for regulatory activity, Michael Barr, mm -hmm. along with the Fed chair, uh, Jerome Powell, have both indicated that they want to look objectively at their own analysis and uh, they'll report back to us. Uh, you know, when I say we don't know what it is yet, remember this occurred last, really last Thursday and Friday, and now we are just seven days away from that. Uh, we think that they will give us a fairly good and accurate report, but let's get all the facts put together first. Always fair to wait for the facts. Would you be open to tweaks in the law that you've already tweaked at least once, tweaks in the law if the facts show that there is a gap in the regulations here? Oh, most certainly. You know, look, there is no such thing as a perfect regulation. There's no such thing as a perfect law. We can always go back in and look at, at tweaking. The question here is, is and, and, and the same thing, I guess I should say, is, is uh, fair for the, the regulatory uh, organizations, in this case, the, the Federal Reserve. They have the ability, under this tailored approach, to actually make those modifications without changing the law. And so if they believe that these particular institutions that have a really high concentration of uh, depositors in one particular area, um, 
and who really know each other and who communicate with each other, when you have that type of a risk opportunity, uh, is it worth looking at different types of, of, of regulatory aspects? Senator Rounds, some of your fellow Republican senators are using this occasion to make an anti-China point. Some of the depositors in the bank are people or companies from China. They're saying that the U.S. should not restore the savings of depositors from China. In a few seconds, what do you think of that? Should the U.S. make all depositors whole or only some? I think the uh, the approach that we took to begin with, which said that to begin with here in the in the immediacy right afterwards, all of the depositors will be protected. That to me was the right thing to do. But long term, when we talk about making all deposits protected, that's where we, we have to look at whether or not we have a plan in place to be able to pay for that and who should assume that burden, if at all. Senator Mike Rounds, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Federal Aviation Administration, for the first time in 14 years, has hosted a safety summit. It's done that because in recent months, there have been at least six incidents of airplanes nearly colliding on runways. And those near misses, plus cases of violent turbulence and other mishaps, are causing concern in the aviation industry. NPR's David Shaper reports on how the FAA is working to improve safety. The recent close calls include aircraft mistakenly crossing active runways and planes cleared to take off and land on the same runway at nearly the same time. In kicking off the Aviation Safety Summit, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told industry stakeholders they cannot wait for the next catastrophic event to take action. Initial information suggests that more mistakes than usual are happening across the system, on runways, at gates when planes are pushing back, in control towers and on flight decks. So the FAA pulled together more than 200 leaders from airlines, airports, air traffic control and labor unions. They broke off into working groups covering various elements of aviation safety and areas of expertise. Acting FAA Administrator Billy Nolan tasked them with looking at all aspects of their operations with fresh eyes. Vigilance can never take a day off. We must ask ourselves difficult questions and sometimes even uncomfortable ones, even when we are confident that our system is sound. National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Hammondy quickly detailed one uncomfortable truth. Now the NTSB has issued seven recommendations on runway collisions that have not been acted upon. One is 23 years old and still appropriate today on technology warning pilots of an impending collision. Others questioned whether efforts to improve airline efficiency and the rapid recovery from the pandemic have compromised safety. Of note is the huge turnover of aviation employees. As many veteran pilots, air traffic controllers and others took early retirements, leaving a newer, less experienced workforce. Recommendations include improved training to reduce the likelihood of human error incidents. The FAA says the conversations about improving aviation safety will continue in the coming months and could form the basis for new industry guidelines and regulations. David Chaper, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, some of the highest death rates from the opioid crisis are in Native American communities. We learn about efforts inside the Cherokee Nation to help families cope. And later, we hear from former Massachusetts acting governor Jane Swift. She'll talk about the harm that comes from focusing on the wrong things when it comes to women in power.
the world remains entirely too focused on hair, hemlines, and husbands. She faced Alana then as the first sitting U.S. governor to give birth back in 2001. That's in 30 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Right now, it's 719. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Increasing clouds today with a high near 48. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 35. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 52. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Statistics don't really show the human cost of opioid addiction in this country. What does show that is the effect on one community, one family, one nine-year-old girl who our colleague Brian Mann met in the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. Late afternoon, Mazzy Walker shows me around her family's farm near Tahlequah, Oklahoma, capital of the Cherokee Nation. Cows are walking, turkeys, a dog, (laughs) I don't know what. Mazzy is nine. Walking through the grass, she wears a flowing red dress, huge eyeglasses, and big boots. She is curious about everything. So I heard you live in New York. I do. I live in New York. She tells me she really wants to see New York, and her dad, Gary, speaks up. Tell him why you want to go there, Mazzy. Because there's an American Girl doll store. She loves American Girl dolls. Mazzy and her six-year-old brother, Ransom, are both Cherokee, so is Gary, their dad. The reason I've come to visit, the kids are adopted. Their biological parents got caught up in pain pills, heroin, and fentanyl. Gary and his wife Cassie are part of a network of Cherokee families who've stepped up in response to the opioid crisis. All of the children we have adopted or fostered has been because of that. Mazzy was a baby when she was adopted. I ask what she thinks about what happened to her first family, her biological mom and dad. 
I don't know. <laughs> I never got to meet them. This is part of the opioid fentanyl crisis that doesn't get talked about much. Fentanyl is now a leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 40. But even when people survive, addiction is breaking up families as far more parents lose custody of their kids. The Cherokee Nation's principal chief, Chuck Hoskin, says the drug crisis here is so intense, it threatens efforts to strengthen his people's way of life. That's such an important mission for the Cherokee Nation, our language and culture. And yet this drug problem is really uh, hampering it. Chief Hoskins says so many Cherokee families are being disrupted, a lot of children wind up being fostered or adopted outside the tribal culture. Families not only being broken up, but children being removed from tribal lands, this is an additional pressure. And so anything we can do to keep families whole uh, means we can keep our children. Public health experts say it's not surprising Native American families are so vulnerable. Across the U.S., many tribes, like the Cherokee, faced generational trauma, including genocide and forced relocation. Government boarding schools tore families apart. Economic policies drove tribes into grinding poverty. Joseph Gaughan is a member of the Ani Grovant tribal nation and a public health researcher at Harvard University. This has wrought incredible devastation on our traditional ways of life at key junctures in history. And one thing we see around the world is when someone's society collapses is a turn to substances of abuse. Beginning in the 1990s, drug companies flooded many Native American towns with prescription pain pills. There were pill mills here in Tahlequah, big profits being made as more and more Cherokee got addicted. Much of the public awareness during America's opioid crisis focused on rural white towns. But Gon says Native communities suffered even higher rates of opioid addiction, overdose death, and suicide. Deaths of despair were actually worse for a longer period of time. And so that probably should have been acknowledged much earlier and for much longer for American Indian people. Gary Walker experienced this wave of addiction and despair up close as he and Cassie took in a total of nine Cherokee kids. Being in foster care and going to court cases, and sometimes I would sit there for four to five or six hours, and I would not only watch one court case, but I would watch 30 or 40 at the same time, and it really hit me then just how big the problem was. All the kids they've taken in, including Mazzy and Ransom, were exposed to drugs in the womb. Some of them were definitely opioid that showed up on the test. One of them was 14 different drugs. And I didn't even know 14 different drugs existed at the time. It's just really heartbreaking. That's meant health and developmental challenges for Mazzy and Ransom. For Mazzy, it goes without saying, this is all deeply personal. And while we talk, she listens closely. Well, I have a question. Sure. How old was I when I like learned to like talk and stuff? Uh, you were closer to three. Cassie, the kid's adoptive mom, says it's hard explaining to Mazzy and Ransom what's happened here. We always remind them that God gave them to us very special and um, that their parents were sick and so we were able to raise them. There is mothers out there that did lose their child and I was able to become their mother. So it's just a lot of emotions. Now, here's something important. As I talk to Cherokee families about this crisis, they say bluntly, yes, fentanyl and other kinds of substance abuse are hitting really hard. But they also say there is hope and a lot of hard work being done to make things better. Joseph Gaughan, the researcher at Harvard, says Native communities across the U.S. are doing really innovative things to help their people heal. Our peoples are still around and are growing and are charting better futures. We need to recognize that people's resilience carries through. 
The Cherokee Nation just launched a $100 million public health effort focused on addiction treatment and recovery. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskins says a big part of that new investment will help young parents get health care for addiction before fentanyl breaks their families apart. The Cherokee people want to take care of the Cherokee people. We want to take care of each other. So I think that's valuable when you're talking about an area of medicine that does involve traditional Western medicine, but also involves some element of our culture. Back on his farm, Gary Walker watches as his kids play out in the field. He says he is hopeful about this new campaign. I think it will help. I'm, I'm proud of our tribe. He says with the Cherokee Nation's support, Mazzy and Ransom are doing really well. They are thriving with treatment and help from the tribe and the state and different places. We went through therapies and they are currently thriving. Mazzy's in the third grade now, actually reading ahead of level. And she tells me one thing at school is making her really happy. Friends. You have good friends? Yes, That's and playtime. <laughs> Mazzy's lost a lot in this opioid epidemic, but she has a family again and she and her brother are healing. People here tell me they believe this kind of hope and resilience are possible for their whole community. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. This afternoon, on All Things Considered, we remain in the Cherokee Nation. We'll hear how they're spending millions won from drug companies and national opioid settlements. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, leaders of South Korea and Japan today hold their first bilateral meeting in 12 years in a sign that the tense relationship between the two U.S. allies may be easing. And a hearing yesterday left the decision of whether to take an abortion pill off the market in the hands of a federal judge appointed by former President Donald Trump. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The head of the National Transportation Safety Board says the FAA and the airline industry need to do more to ensure safety in the skies and at airports in the U.S. Yesterday's Aviation Safety Summit was prompted by a series of recent close calls, including at least six runway incursions. It's been two years since eight people were shot to death in Georgia at three spas in and around Atlanta. Shemaine Cruz with member station WABE says events are being held to remember those killed. Activists and community members are at the Georgia Capitol this morning to honor the victims of the mass shooting, followed by a rally in downtown Atlanta. The attack took place amid a spike in crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, many targeting women. The accused shooter faces the death penalty in Fulton County, where some of the shootings took place. It will be the first time Georgia's new hate crime law is being applied to a Fulton County case. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta.
Robert Aaron Long has pleaded not guilty to four shooting deaths at a pair of spas in Fulton County. Long pleaded guilty to four shooting deaths at a spa in Cherokee County, where he's serving concurrent life sentences plus 35 years. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren believes the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were entirely avoidable. She's introduced a bill to undo the 2018 rollback of banking regulations that she blames for the failures. This bill will address the immediate issue in front of us, an explosion of risk in large financial institutions like SVB that have been inadequately supervised and regulated for the last four years. The rollback in 2018 eased restrictions put in place by the Dodd-Frank Act that Wall Street reform and consumer protection measure was enacted following the 2008 financial crisis. It was created in part by former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank. Starting this July, people living in the U.S. without documentation will be able to get driver's licenses in Massachusetts. That'll affect nearly 200,000 people. WBUR's Garo Hagopian says we're now getting a clearer picture of the financial cost. The governor's office says the price tag for implementing the new access law could hit just shy of $30 million, but will be largely offset by RMV transaction fees. The law requires the registry to verify foreign documents presented by immigrants, something then-Governor Charlie Baker said the agency doesn't have the ability to do when he vetoed the bill last spring. The legislature ended up passing the law over his objection. Governor Healy is recommending the necessary funding in her budget proposal. The state's transportation secretary says if approved by lawmakers, the money would pay to train RMV staff to verify new ID documents, hire more customer service reps and road test examiners, and expand service operations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. We should note the decision to allow undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses was upheld by voters in a ballot question last November. The Archdiocese of Boston is telling Catholics it's okay to eat corned beef on St. Patrick's Day. The holiday is tomorrow, and corned beef is part of a traditional meal. But on Fridays, during the holy season of Lent, Catholics are not supposed to eat meat. Cardinal Sean O'Malley says he's granting a dispensation from the rule, but stresses it's for tomorrow only. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. The Celtics snuck by the Timberwolves last night in Minneapolis. The final was 104 to 102. The Seas will visit the Portland Trailblazers tomorrow. The Bruins will try to end their three game skid tonight as they visit the Winnipeg Jets. And in women's hockey, the Boston Pride take on the Minnesota Whitecaps tonight at the Bentley Arena in Waltham. It's the first game in the best of three playoff semifinals. Clouds will move in throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 40s. Tonight, it'll be mostly overcast and will fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, an overcast Friday with high temperatures in the low 50s. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup to protect PCs, Macs, mobile devices, and servers, along with iDrive E2, offering hot S3 compatible object storage at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. 
Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. It is now up to a federal judge appointed by Donald Trump to decide whether to take an abortion pill off the market. That drug is used in nearly all medication abortions in the United States. And anti-abortion groups are suing over whether the FDA improperly approved it. NPR's Sarah McCammon was in the Texas courtroom yesterday when both sides presented their arguments. She's with us now from Amarillo. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Sasha. What do you consider the highlights from yesterday's hearing? You know, one thing I noticed is that Judge Matthew Kaczmarek asked a lot of questions of both sides throughout the hearing, which, by the way, lasted for four hours. And a couple of times he brought up a brief filed by a group of Republican attorneys general. They argue that the availability of abortion pills undermines their state's ability to restrict abortion, which they can do, of course, after last summer's Supreme Court decision. An attorney for the anti-abortion group that's behind this lawsuit, Aaron Hawley, sort of seized on that idea in one exchange with the judge. And Hawley, who, by the way, Sasha, is married to Republican Senator Josh Hawley, said that the overturning of Roe v. Wade marks a sea change in the relationship between the states and the federal government when it comes to abortion. And she argued that access to this drug, mifepristone, is an affront to the right of states, as she put it, to protect women and children. A lawyer representing the FDA, meanwhile, said that state laws about medication abortion are beside the point. Instead, she said the question for this case is about the safety and effectiveness of the abortion pill, which was approved, by the way, more than 20 years ago. Sarah, did the judge seem to give any hints to which way he was leaning? I mean, you never want to predict, you know, what a judge is going to do. But we know a lot about this judge, Kaczmarek. Not only was he appointed by former President Trump, but he has a long track record of involvement in conservative causes and ruling in favor of conservative causes. A lot of the judge's questions focus on what is known in legal speak as remedies. So in other words, how exactly to move forward if you were to agree with the anti-abortion groups who filed this lawsuit. So what that kind of a ruling might look like in practical terms. And what might that look like? Yeah, one option the judge discussed with the lawyers is directly ordering the FDA to pull the drug off the market nationwide, at least temporarily, while the case plays out. That's what the plaintiffs want him to do. But short of that, he could instruct the FDA to start a withdrawal process that would take some time to implement. Uh, That's something he also talked about during the hearing. David Donati is with the ACLU of Texas, and here's what he said. The scope of that order is going to be very important. It could make the difference between whether mifepristone is order to be taken off the shelves immediately or whether there's an administrative process that allows for public input and comment, which would be more appropriate. Either way, he says there's likely to be some confusion in the short term. You know, what steps, if any, does the FDA have to take? Do doctors have to stop prescribing the drug right away? And Donati, by the way, along with several other legal observers who flew into Amarillo, was not able to get inside the small federal courtroom here because of limited space. Oh, a lot of interest then. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. You may remember there was a lot of concern leading up to the hearing about public access, the Judge made the details of it public only two days beforehand, and that was after some pressure from media groups. No cameras were allowed, no public live stream. So a lot of people couldn't listen who wanted to, and I'm hearing a lot of frustration from abortion rights advocates about that, given how high stakes this case is. That's NPR's Sarah McCammon reporting from Amarillo. Sarah, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you, Sasha. Okay, suppose you have two friends. They're close friends. They're people you rely on, but they don't get along with each other. 
That is the awkward reality for the United States in East Asia. Its troops help defend both Japan and South Korea. The U.S. also depends on both to help confront threats, including China and North Korea, which launched another missile just today. But the two countries feud for a lot of reasons, so it's a big deal that the leaders of the two countries met today. NPR's Anthony Kuhn lives in Seoul and often travels to Tokyo, so he is the person to show us why this meeting matters. Hey there, Anthony. Hey, Steve. What makes this relationship hard? Well, uh, one sign of it is that the leaders of these two countries have not had a bilateral meeting in each other's capitals in 12 years. They've met at multilateral meetings, but not face-to-face in a bilateral setting. And so they're going to try to normalize ties that uh, we could say have been at their worst point in decades. But as you pointed out, uh, they also have a lot in common. They have these festering historical disputes But, for example, young people are not that aware of the history. They're very much into each other's music, K-pop and J-pop and movies and food. And to them, looking ahead to the future and ramping up exchanges is just uh, a no-brainer. And I guess when we say the history, we should mention that Japan held South Korea, all of Korea actually, as a colonial possession for a long time. uh, And it was a brutal occupation. So that's part of the history here, part of the tension. What broke the ice? Well, yes, it was this historical dispute about Koreans who were forced to work for Japan during World War II, and South Korea's Supreme Court in 2018 ordered Japanese companies to compensate the forced laborers, but the companies refused because they said the issue was already settled when the countries normalized their ties in 1965. Hmm. So the two governments tried to reach an agreement, and they couldn't, so South Korea offered to compensate the laborers through a Korean foundation. But the three surviving laborers themselves want to be compensated by Japan, not by South Korea. They want Japan to apologize. Japan will only restate past apologies. This is all about three surviving laborers? Is that what you said? That's right. All quite aged, so there's not a lot of time left to work on this issue. But of course, the symbolism is far more than three people. So what does Japan still need to do? Well, um, Japan has to do a little bit less because South Korea made the first move. Public opinion in Japan is a little bit better, and Japan is just not giving up that much. But Prime Minister Fumio Kishida needs to be shown to be doing something to reciprocate. South Korea's uh, President Yoon has a little bit more to do. He has to address the criticism that in his eagerness to make nice with Tokyo and Washington, he's selling out the interests of the Korean victims. Uh, let's hear how Kim Seon, who's a lawyer for the victims, put it to reporters this week. She's saying that this case is not simply about money. It's a claim to compensation by victims who suffered serious human rights violations. Compensation is money given to console someone who suffered damages that cannot be repaired with money but has no other way. Mm. So she explained for that reason the debt to these forced labor victims is not one that just anybody can pay. So what does this meeting of the two leaders mean for the United States? Well, the Biden administration claims that Asia is their priority and they're going to work through its allies. And they've been nudging these allies to set aside their disputes and focus on security issues, such as the intercontinental ballistic missile that North Korea launched just hours before the summit. South Korea's President Yoon will head to Washington next month for a state visit with Biden. And if he can show Biden that he is delivering something that Washington has really wanted, then that could win him some political capital. NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul. Anthony, thanks as always for your insights. Be well. Thank you, Steve.
This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, I talked to John Santiago, who is Massachusetts's first cabinet-level secretary to oversee veterans' services. And women occupy most of Massachusetts's statewide elected offices, but former acting Governor Jane Swift says they're still scrutinized in a way that men aren't. In your forecast, it'll get increasingly cloudy today and temperatures will rise to the upper 40s, mostly cloudy tonight, and we fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a cloudy Friday in the low 50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 743. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and Camp Marrow Vista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at AYF.com slash Vista. A Boston-based online marketing platform is the latest tech company to announce layoffs. Clavio plans to lay off about 140 people. That's roughly 10 percent of its workforce. It's unclear how many of those cuts will involve Boston-area workers. The company says it wants to reassess where it's investing. A minor league hockey team in Worcester plans to stay at the DCU Center for a few more years. The Railers are extending their lease through 2028. They'll have the option to stay even longer. The team's original lease was extended by one year because of the pandemic. It's 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Maura Healey's cabinet is slowly taking shape, and for the first time, it includes a veterans secretary. John Santiago started the position at the beginning of the month. He's an Army veteran, a doctor, and a former state lawmaker. Secretary Santiago, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. So to get right to it, in 2020, there were deadly COVID outbreaks at the state-run home for veterans in Holyoke and Chelsea. They killed more than 100 people. Then last year, legislators passed reforms that changed the structure and governance of those homes. That included creating this executive-level office. So why do you think your position was needed at this level? Well, let me just start off by saying words cannot describe the level of trauma and tragedy that was experienced during the height of COVID, um, particularly at the homes. Uh, there is still amount, a tremendous amount of grief with the families who were impacted by it, the veterans still living there, and the staff there. And we can't change the past, but we can shape the future. And Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll are committed to doing that, and I'm looking forward to leading that effort. Is it too soon to ask if you have any ideas about what specific reforms are needed? Well, a big part of the reform um, has been done. Move this department to a secretariat, change the whole governance structure of the homes, Obviously, my first and second and third priorities are to build a foundation so that we can rebuild the trust and best support our veterans. So what are the challenges as you do that? There are a whole host of challenges. I mean, look, the veteran community in the Commonwealth, there's about 300,000. It's an aging community. Um, There are issues with respect to homes and housing uh, and homelessness. We have substance use issues as well, you know, mental health um, as well. And the department right now, or the executive office, really has a number of programs dedicated to all this. But I'm really interested in building up this foundation. Listen, we can't do all the great stuff and provide all the the excellent services that we want to do if we don't have a foundation. And so we're effectively doubling our staff. 
You mentioned some of the big issues facing veterans. Can we go back to that and break it down just a little bit? The homeless and opioid epidemics. Uh, I mean, it's hard to get action on that for the general population. H- how are you trying to draw attention to what vets need in those areas? It's an incredibly challenging issue. As a emergency room provider, I see this day in, day out when I was in the ER. I live close to Mass and Cass, and so it's something I experience uh, quite often. I'm fortunate that we have a number of partners uh, in this field. I just got one of my first, very first visits was visiting Homebase, a nonprofit out in Charlestown, and they do a tremendous job um, offering services and coming up with creative and innovative ways to best treat veterans who are a special population. I mean, many of these folks are high-performing individuals in the Army, but when they come back here, they might be lost. They might need some support, and so we're here to provide that. And I mean, our message is, you know, as we begin to create this foundation, build out this secretariat, I, I want to let the veteran community know that we have their back. And what powers do you have as a member of the cabinet as compared to before? So what changes is that much of the red tape is gone. You know, prior to this, we were underneath the executive office of HHS. So if we needed to do something, we needed to go up a certain hierarchy, a certain ladder. Right now, we have direct access to the governor. She has injected a number of financial and human resources into our executive office to address the the many issues that veterans face today. Is it meaningful to have a Latino representing veterans? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I look at my personal background, Puerto Ricans, and Puerto Ricans are disproportionately serving in the military. The veteran population is diversifying. And the fastest growing group are women. Um, you know, we're looking at uh, younger folks, you know, people coming back from, you know, years ago, Iraq, or most recently, Afghanistan, and now Syria. People are still uh, in some of these countries. And, but it's a diverse group. It's growing more diverse. And, you know, we are going to put together an office that reflects that diversity. Veteran Secretary John Santiago, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. One thing that never came up in my conversation with John Santiago, he's a relatively new dad. But in 2001, it was a big topic for Jane Swift. She was pregnant with twins when she became acting governor. Swift was the first woman to hold the job and the first sitting governor in the country to ever give birth. All of her firsts didn't come without a cost. In this commentary, Swift reflects on how the media focused on her physical appearance and family life. She notes that those topics can still drown out all others when it comes to women in power. About a month ago, I fled from a Massachusetts Women in Politics event. For reasons unknown to me at the time, I felt angry, sad, and confused. I just had to get out of there. At first, I thought it might be grief. My husband, Chuck, died just over a year ago, and February is full of personal landmines. It took me a while to get to the heart of my frustration. And surprise, it wasn't grief. In Massachusetts, women in politics are achieving extraordinary things. There are lots of women in positions of power and influence. It's a reality that seemed awfully far from reach while I was on Beacon Hill. But here I am, the proverbial skunk at the garden party. As governor, the majority of press coverage I received was about my body, my hair and wardrobe, and the audacity of my decision to start a family. But in recent months, I've reemerged in a more sympathetic light. For example, a Boston Magazine writer came out to Williamstown to make amends, of sorts, for showing up on my doorstep, uninvited, two decades ago. Back then, I'd chewed her out for violating my privacy, 
while standing in my bathrobe very pregnant with twins. Until now, I haven't ever discussed what actually made me so upset that evening. At the time, our house was home to older people struggling with health issues and their many cats. We could barely afford to convert it to a two-family dwelling. I wasn't exactly inviting the media in because I felt embarrassed. We weren't poor, but we were only steps from it. I didn't fit the profile of what a governor should look like, and I paid for it dearly. I've never forgotten that feeling. The muscle memory of that discomfort and shame is what came flooding back at that Massachusetts Women in Politics soiree. At the event, nearly everyone commented on my hair and appearance. You look great. I love your hair. Love that outfit. But few asked me about my work. I guess by traditional beauty standards, I do look better. I've got a more expensive haircut. My wardrobe has definitely improved. Grief has gotten me on a consistent workout schedule and an inconsistent eating schedule. Though trust me, I go back to having bad hair and extra pounds in a heartbeat if it meant having Chuck by my side. In all those interactions, I was being lauded for attaining some superficial status of woman to be admired. I couldn't bear it. The focus on my looks, even as a positive, felt just as diminishing as the negative. It frustrated me just as much as the press coverage did two decades ago, perhaps even more so coming from a room full of empowered women who should know better. The world remains entirely too focused on hair, hemlines, and husbands. And the implicit bias against women continues to be fueled not just by gender, but also race and class. Even those of us who fight it, practice it. So the next time you're at a work event, no matter how pink or festive, condition yourself to make your first comment about work. Here's a good icebreaker. What have you been working on? Jane Swift is the former acting governor of Massachusetts. She recently founded an animal rescue and education center on her farm in Williamstown. To read her essay and many others, visit WBUR.org. I took a walk in the rain one day on the wrong side of the tracks. I stood on the rail till I saw that train just to see how my heart would react. Coming up, we visit students at the University of Maryland who are learning the business and science of raising animals by taking care of their own sheep. And in 20 minutes, a new report from the CDC finds that people are dying at an alarming rate during pregnancy or soon after childbirth. In your forecast, it'll slowly grow cloudy today and we'll have temperatures in the upper 40s. Tonight, it'll be overcast and in the mid-30s, it'll stay cloudy for a Friday, but will be warmer in the low 50s. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 754. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. 
and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Many high school seniors are figuring out their college plans. NPR's Claire Morishima looked into some of higher education's quirkier offerings. She found one on a campus farm at the University of Maryland. Sheep management is a popular course at UMD, and there's usually a wait list. When the spring-only course starts, students pair up to care for one of 20 pregnant sheep. Lambwatch was the reason I came to this university. That's teaching assistant Caitlin Mercado. Sarah Balcom, who taught the class for 12 years, says that sheep usually give birth at night, and that can be inconvenient. You're on call, you have your phone with you at all hours of the night. Before sheep go into labor, they stop eating their grain, they isolate themselves, and their bodies get ready for delivery. (laughs) Students try their best to make it to the farm in time. They have told me stories of waking up in the middle of the night and driving 45 minutes and trying hard not to speed because you're never quite sure if the cop's going to believe you that you're going to the birth of your lamb. Their first job is just to stand by. If all is going well, they don't intervene. Once the lambs are born, students run through a list of health checks. Caitlin Mercado remembers cleaning stalls, trimming hooves, taking temperatures. And something else she learned? Lambs aren't white and fluffy. I was expecting them to be really soft, but they're really like oily and like greasy. And I was not expecting my hand to come back like brown from the like grease. That grease? Lanolin, a wax they produce naturally. It's also used by humans to treat blisters and dry skin. I'm going to turn it off with my sponge and... The syllabus calls for a specific uniform. Boots that can withstand an acid wash and coveralls that students keep at the farmhouse. That's to prevent the spread of disease. You were not allowed to wash them with your normal clothes, mainly so that if you did get something like afterbirth or poop or pee, which is very common, um, you weren't contaminating your other clothes. I can see the water steaming. Yes, you like it hot. Claire Jennings took sheet management in 2022. I have like ADD and on top of that I have like anxiety and depression. She says regular classroom settings, they've never really worked for her. I'd have to take really intensive, ridiculously intricate notes and do like a lot of highlighting. And at the end of the class, I don't feel like I've learned anything. I actually feel like I kind of feel dumber going out than than coming in. But managing a flock of sheep, it's super hands-on, which is how she learns best. Now, she's a TA. I like the empowerment feeling I get after the hands-on lessons where I'm like, I could totally go and do this by myself now, no problem. The lambs are born in pens, but when they're a few weeks old, they're moved to a big enclosure where they can socialize and be part of the flock. They will have lamb races, they will start getting the zoomies. And once they're grown, the males will often be sold for meat. And the females sold to other farms for breeding. At some point, we have to kind of start distancing ourselves from them because we are going to sell them. After all, this is a working farm. And that can be really hard on students whose primary experiences have always been with pets. Because at the end of the day, this farm still needs to pay the bills. Claire Murashima, NPR News. You can check out all the cute lamb pictures at npr.org.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Stock markets worldwide are reacting to news that Credit Suisse Bank will borrow $54 billion to settle fears about its financial stability. It's Thursday, March 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lawmakers are raising an alarm about the increasing number of people dying during pregnancy or soon after childbirth. I do think there's so much more attention being paid and more people looking for the solutions. Plus, unfortunately, the FCC does not have jurisdiction over cable networks. Fox News hosts efforts to rewrite history on the January 6 riots are exposing limits on the government's ability to regulate cable news. And this hour, the White House is demanding that TikTok be sold or risk a nationwide ban. It gradually grows cloudy today and it'll be in the upper 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. European stock markets and shares of the troubled bank Credit Suisse are in positive territory. Swiss regulators have offered the bank a lifeline. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports Credit Suisse shares plummeted yesterday after its biggest shareholder said it wouldn't provide any more funding. After Credit Suisse lost nearly a fifth of its value, Switzerland's central bank stepped in, offering to lend the beleaguered bank $54 billion. This helped European markets regain some of the losses, with Frankfurt's DAX index gaining nearly 2% in opening trading. Credit Suisse has been plagued by mismanagement for several years, and recent bank failures in the U.S. helped spur a sell-off of the bank's stock, which in turn led to a broader damage throughout European markets, leading to big losses for some of Europe's biggest banks. The European Central Bank will try to calm the markets today as it meets to discuss an interest rate hike. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. The Biden administration is demanding that social media app TikTok be sold to an American company. It's currently owned by a China-based firm. U.S. government officials and members of Congress have questioned whether Americans' data are safe with TikTok. Chinese laws say the Chinese government can have complete access to businesses there. A federal judge in Texas says he will issue a decision as soon as possible in a case seeking to force the Food and Drug Administration to take a common abortion pill off the market. NPR Sarah McCammon reports from Amarillo, where the case is being heard. During the hearing in a small federal courtroom in Amarillo, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek heard from lawyers for the anti-abortion rights group Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine and for the FDA. Kaczmarek has long-standing ties to conservative political groups. He noted that Republican officials from more than 20 states argue that widespread access to abortion pills limits their ability to enforce restrictions. A lawyer representing the FDA responded, saying that's not relevant to the agency's long-standing determination that the pill is safe and effective. 
Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Amarillo. Much of New England and New York are still recovering from this week's powerful nor'easter. Some areas got as much as three feet of snow. Michael Barbieri of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, says it is tough to shovel it out of the way. The snow's heavy, a little bit of uh, slush and ice at the base makes it a little bit harder. Take a few breaks. The tracking site poweroutage.us says more than 40,000 customers in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine still don't have electricity back yet. Separately, a big winter storm is bringing heavy snowfall to the upper Midwest and Great Lakes this morning. Winter storm warnings and advisories are posted from Nebraska to the upper peninsula of Michigan. Several inches of snow will fall, and forecasters say some ice is expected. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Federal transportation officials are vowing to keep up the focus on airline safety following a close call at Logan Airport. A JetBlue flight had to abort a landing weeks ago to avoid a collision with a private jet. Its pilots took off without authorization. The Federal Aviation Administration held a safety summit yesterday. Administrator Billy Nolan says that Logan Airport incident is one example of a recent uptick in close calls. There's no question that aviation is amazingly safe, but vigilance can never take a day off. The FAA is investigating six close calls involving U.S. commercial flights since December. Boston Public Schools leaders are recommending the school committee approve a new bus contract. The five-year deal is with TransDev, which is the current transportation provider. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, it includes financial incentives and penalties to encourage better on-time performance. In an attempt to address frequent late buses, the new contract includes provisions that allow TransDev to get incentive payouts for on-time performance greater than 95 percent, while paying penalties when buses are late too often. Daniel Rosengard, BPS's Director of Transportation, says he's confident the updates will improve bus service. It's laser-focused on vendor accountability tied to student-centered outcomes to ensure that an incoming vendor has a significant financial interest in improving and maintaining strong performance. The school committee is expected to vote on the $17.5 million contract next week. If it passes, it will begin in July. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The state's public health emergency for COVID will end in May. After that, state employees will no longer have to be vaccinated against COVID. Carlene Pavlos is the executive director of the Massachusetts Public Health Association. She says this change should not de-emphasize the importance of vaccinations. We really have to attend, like make certain that the state continues their public education campaigns on vaccines and make sure that vaccines become a ordinary part of care. The latest state data show 93 percent of Massachusetts residents have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. That's compared to 81 percent of the U.S. population. There's more debris falling from the ceiling at T-stations, this time at the Forest Hills stop on the Orange Line. A spokesperson for the T says it was a piece of felt that weighed less than a pound. Earlier this month, a ceiling panel fell and nearly hit someone at the Harvard station. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape. Available now.
The Celtics topped the Timberwolves 104-102 last night in Minneapolis. The Seas will visit the Portland Trailblazers tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will skate with the Jets in Winnipeg. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll get to the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 30s. More clouds tomorrow, but warmer. It should get into the lower 50s. We could see a little rain tomorrow afternoon into Saturday morning. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. More than 1,200 times in a single year, the miracle of childbirth can go terribly wrong. In each of those cases, the mother died. That number does not expose a new problem. Six years ago, NPR's groundbreaking reporting found that mothers in the richest country on Earth were far more likely to die after childbirth than in other nations. New numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show the problem has grown worse. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here with more insight on the numbers. Good morning, Selena. Good morning, Sasha. Tell us more about these CDC findings. Well, this is an annual report from the National Center for Health Statistics, which is part of CDC. It looked at deaths of pregnant women up to 42 days after delivery. And in all, there were 1,205 maternal deaths in 2021. There were increases across all age groups and racial groups. And the overall rate is alarming as well. That's the number that's per 100,000 births. The rate of maternal deaths in the U.S. in 2021 was 32.9. That is huge. For comparison, the rate in Australia in 2020 was two deaths per 100,000 births. Do researchers know why there would be such high numbers in the U.S.? That's a big question. I spoke to the author of the study, Donna Hoyert, and she told me that COVID-19 is probably at least partially responsible. And likely that's both people dying from COVID-19 while pregnant and problems accessing care for other complications because of pandemic disruptions like healthcare workers shortages. Is anything being done to address this? Well, actually, there have been some new efforts in recent years, although it may take time for those efforts to start bringing the numbers down. I talked to Dr. Veronica Glispie-Bell. She's an OBGYN in Louisiana and investigates maternal deaths for the health department. And she says there are promising signs that awareness is improving. She was invited to speak at the White House and testify in Congress. I do think there's so much more attention being paid and more people looking for the solutions. And she also made note of the racial disparities in today's report. The maternal death rate is highest among Black women. It's nearly three times higher than the rate for white women. You know, Selena, we're talking about numbers and data here, but it's worth saying out loud that every time a woman dies during or after childbirth, that means a newborn left behind. Yeah, I mean, it is heartbreaking. I talked about these numbers with Wanda Irving. In 2017, her daughter, who was actually an epidemiologist at CDC in Atlanta, got really sick a few weeks after giving birth. She had gained nine pounds. She was having headaches. One leg was bigger than the other. And she said, there's something dreadfully wrong. I don't understand. Will you please check? She went back to the hospital again and again, but kept getting sent home. And about three weeks after she gave birth, she collapsed at home and died. So Wanda Irving now lives in her daughter's house and is raising her granddaughter, who's now six years old, 
and she's bright but struggles with her loss. And she breaks down and she's in tears and it's like, what's wrong? It's like, I want my mommy and, you know, can I die to go see my mommy? Irving now runs an organization called Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project. She says she doesn't want another little girl or a little boy to grow up without their mother's love. That's NPR's Selena Simmons-Duff. And Selena, thank you. And thanks for looking at the people behind these numbers. Thank you. Okay, Sasha, I need you to catch me up a little bit. I've been on assignment the last couple of days, as you know, and I, I only just heard a little bit about some kind of drone. What happened with this drone? So there was an American drone flying over the Black Sea doing some kind of surveillance. It ended up in the water. This happened Tuesday. The U.S. says a Russian plane struck it, but Russia claims the plane and the drone didn't even make contact. Now, there is a video we've been seeing in the studio this morning, but there's still disagreement about the video. Yeah, you see this plane swooping by the drone, the drone's eye view. Now, when things go wrong, whatever happened, the U.S. military really likes to talk to the other side. They want to avoid some catastrophic misunderstanding. So yesterday, U.S. and Russian military officials did speak by phone, and NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has been following this. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So can this video out today resolve this dispute about the facts? Well, it is pretty compelling. The video shows uh, Russian jets making two passes very close to the U.S. drone from behind. In the first one, the Russian jet sprays fuel in an apparent attempt to fog the camera or sensors on the drone. Hmm. And then there's almost an identical second pass. The Russian jet again sprays fuel, and this time the video feed goes blank. The video feed recovers. The military says it took about 60 seconds. And then you clearly see one prop or blade on the propeller that's mangled. Uh, The U.S. says the drone was unable to fly at this point and then crashed into the Black Sea off Ukraine's southern coast. Okay, so you don't have video of the Russian plane literally striking the drone, but you have evidence of some kind of damage and evidence of this fuel spray. And I guess we should mention that anybody can look at this video for themselves now. That's right, Steve. It's all over social media. And just be aware if you're watching it, the propeller um, on this drone is at the back of the drone. So the camera is filming uh, the back side of the aircraft. And the video is a little over 40 seconds. The Pentagon says it was edited, but it was shown in the order that the events happened. Are the Russians responding? No, not immediately. Their position has been that there was no contact between the jets and the drone and that the drone crashed on its own. Now, given the repeated passes of the plane by this drone based on the video, does the U.S. assert that the Russian pilot deliberately brought the drone down? Well, they're not sure. The top U.S. general, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said he's not convinced or not sure yet. He spoke about this at the Pentagon yesterday. Was it intentional or not? Uh, Don't know yet. We know that the intercept was intentional. Uh, We know that the aggressive behavior was intentional. We also know it was very unprofessional and very unsafe. Okay, so that's what the U.S. military is saying in public. What are they saying when they reach out to their Russian counterparts on the phone? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke with his Russian counterpart yesterday, and and Austin said the U.S. would continue to fly wherever international law allows. And this means continued flights over the Black Sea off Ukraine's southern coast. You can just go on social media to the sites that track the U.S. planes, and you can see them making these repeated circles over uh, international airspace in the Black Sea. They're trying to pick up information, perhaps about Russian troops in southern Ukraine or Russian war ships in the sea. What does this say about the possibility of some accidental conflict between the United States and Russia? 
Well, it shows how quickly things can can escalate. But it's also clear that President Biden is uh, taking a very measured response here. The U.S. is not making any public demands on Russia or threatening any retaliation. It's clearly U.S.-Russian relations are extremely troubled at this point. NPR's Greg Myrie, I'm glad you got on the line with us. My pleasure. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, wants to overhaul his country's judiciary. But he's gotten huge pushback, and there have been massive protests. Now he's rejected a compromise plan, and Israel's president is warning of civil war. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Jerusalem. President Isaac Herzog said Israel stands at the edge of the abyss. Addressing the nation on TV last night, he warned of a real civil war with human lives. For months, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been rallying in the streets against the government's efforts to change the balance of power. The right-wing government thinks the Supreme Court is too liberal and wants to limit the court's ability to overturn laws. U.S. Jewish leaders flew to Israel to urge compromise. Eric Fingerhut heads the Jewish Federations of North America. This issue is causing real concern and divisions also in our communities. Israel's largely ceremonial president consulted with Netanyahu's government and legal experts and proposed a detailed compromise to limit but not to shackle the Supreme Court and to finally establish a Bill of Rights as Israel approaches its 75th Independence Day. But Netanyahu and his coalition rejected that compromise. Netanyahu said the president's proposal does not bring the necessary balance of powers to Israel. That is the unfortunate truth. Protesters are returning to the streets today. Some have painted the road outside the Supreme Court in red. This crisis comes as the U.S. orchestrates a meeting next week of Israeli and Palestinian officials to try to avert more violence as Ramadan and Passover approach. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Okay, the new champion of the annual 1,000-mile Iditarod Trail sled dog race is a grandson of the race's founder. And that's just one of the things that's interesting about his background. Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan reports from the finish line. On Tuesday afternoon, people crowded along Nome's main street along the frozen Bering Sea coast to watch Ryan Reddington finish. Reddington, dressed in a heavy lime green parka with a thick fur ruff, ran alongside his dog sled and waved to the crowd. He says he's been dreaming of winning the race for a lot longer than just the nine days it took him to finish. Yeah, it's been a, a goal of mine since a very small child to win that I did around, and I can't believe it. It finally happened. And for winning, he'll get a cash prize and a bronze trophy bearing the bust of his grandfather, Joe Reddington Sr., a co-founder of the Iditarod. Reddington's win is made even more significant by the next two finishers, who, like Reddington, claim Alaska Native ancestry. About an hour behind Reddington, Pete Kaiser finished. The Yupik musher says having a podium of three Alaska Native mushers is historic. I mean, it's almost unheard of, you know, and, uh, aside from some of the earlier days of the race when there was more participation from rural teams and, and Native teams. This year was the smallest field in the Iditarod's 51-year history with just 33 teams who started. Mushing in rural communities in particular has been on the decline since the elder Reddington started the race to keep Alaska's state sport thriving. Competitive mushers started keeping more dogs over the past decades. That makes competing more expensive, especially in rural Alaska. Here's third place finisher Richie Deal of Southwest Alaska. We're living in a day and age where, you know, in Antioch, price of gasoline is almost nine bucks a gallon. And 
But in his region, mushing seems to be thriving. It shows that in some parts of Alaska, in rural Alaska, that mushing isn't dying. The three top finishers hope to fulfill the vision of Joe Reddington Sr. to keep Alaska's mushing tradition strong. But after more than a week of racing, they need a nap first. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at the government's ability to regulate cable news after legal filings revealed that Fox News hosts didn't believe the 2020 election was stolen, but repeated the lie on air. And in 20 minutes, French lawmakers will vote today on a pension reform plan that has sparked massive protests. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. In Jingyi Xiao's new film, an Asian-American high school student named Chang seeks to reinvent himself by learning to dunk a basketball. The dunk is such a powerful, I mean, it's like top three sports moves. You know what I mean? Like, there's a home run, there's the knockout in boxing, and then there's the slam dunk. Xiao's movie, Chang Can Dunk, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. The New England Aquarium is welcoming some surprise visitors. The aquarium says a pair of their weedy sea dragons unexpectedly mated. It was uh, particularly unexpected because aquarium officials have been trying to breed sea dragons for over a decade without success. Now they're welcoming 20 newborn sea dragons. Weedy sea sea dragons can grow as long as a foot and a half, and they usually live off the southern coast of Australia. In your forecast, increasing clouds today with a high near 48. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 35. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 52. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. You've made it to Thursday. It's Thursday, right? And it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. When companies make false claims in advertising, the government can sue. But when it comes to trying to regulate information and opinion, it's much more complicated. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been looking into the limits on protecting Americans from lies. Everyone saw what happened on January 6, 2021. Rioters inspired by former President Trump's lies about the 2020 presidential election that he lost stormed the U.S. Capitol in hopes of trying to stop the ceremonial certification of Joe Biden's win. More than 1,000 people are facing charges. More than 500 have been convicted so far for their roles that day. But that hasn't stopped the likes of Fox News' Tucker Carlson from trying to rewrite history, saying this in a recent episode about the majority there that day. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. 
They were sightseers. Hardly sightseers, but let's let Republican senators react to that. John Thune of South Dakota. It was an attack on the Capitol. Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. To somehow put that in the same category as a you know, permitted peaceful protest is, um, is just a lie. Tom Tillis of North Carolina was more blunt. I think it's bullshit. So what can be done about it? The Federal Communications Commission regulates the words that get said over the airwaves, but... Unfortunately, the FCC does not have jurisdiction over cable networks. Former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler. In fact, it doesn't even have jurisdiction over networks like CBS and NBC who use the airwaves. The FCC only regulates licensed local broadcast outlets because they use the public's airwaves. Think of your local news programs, which are affiliates of CBS, NBC, ABC, and Fox. That does not include cable, so essentially no regulation of MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News. The lack of any control over cable news allowing episodes like what Tucker Carlson aired is frustrating for Democratic Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico. He chairs a key subcommittee with oversight over cable. There should be more tools out there to ensure that nonsense like this is not happening. And just as the affiliates on the broadcasting side have to get a license that would not allow this, why is it that folks on the other side within the same corporation are able to do it all while hurting the American people? Lujan says he's exploring his options. He's looking at holding hearings and seeing if there's any more latitude that can be given to regulatory agencies. But it's likely a stretch. The primary difficulty comes from our Constitution, uh, specifically the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech and press. John Vile is a professor at Middle Tennessee State University and co-edits the First Amendment Encyclopedia. That has been interpreted particularly to mean that the government is not the arbiter of opinion. And anytime the government has tried to arbitrate opinion, it ends up getting in trouble. So if established regulatory structures can't do anything about cable, is there any way of holding it accountable? I think we're seeing in the Dominion that there is recourse through the courts. But if your question is, is there recourse through government regulation, the answer is it's much more limited. Wheeler is referring to a lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. It revealed Fox News executives and hosts, including Carlson, knew what they were putting on the air were lies about the 2020 presidential election that they didn't believe. When it comes to mis- and disinformation, though, the biggest threat has been from social media and the internet. That's why Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, has proposed a new federal watchdog, the Digital Platform Commission, to try and regulate truth online. We can't accept another 20 years in this country of digital platforms transforming American life with absolutely no oversight or accountability to the American people. But there haven't been many Republicans willing to go along with it. And without a bipartisan effort, cable news and the internet will remain a modern day wild west of information with no guardrails when it comes to truth and lies. Our colleague Domenico Montanaro is with us now. Good morning, Domenico. Hey there. You know, it is strange that there's this carve out for cable, that government gets to regulate some broadcast outlets, but not others. How did that happen that cable isn't included? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really because of how these regulations came to be. I mean, the FCC was created in 1934, you know, to regulate wire or radio. TV stations came along. The Supreme Court in 1969 established that the the public has an interest over the public's airwaves, you know, and that allowed the FCC to institute at least some regulations uh, over local TV stations. But, you know, the media landscapes evolved so much and some regulations have been put in place for cable, but mostly, you know, to protect a customer's privacy and as related to non-discrimination policies in hiring, but not much about truth. And you're right, a very quickly evolving media landscape. So there's this patchwork system, as you said, not many updates or for, for a long time. You spoke with a couple senators for your story. Did you get the sense that there's any actual movement on Capitol Hill to do something about regulating cable or the Internet? Well, I mean, you know, there's been some bipartisan action related to TikTok lately, uh, but that's mostly because of the perceived threat from China and data collection, not really because of truth or lies. And it's you know pretty unlikely that anything tangible is going to get done in the near term related to that. You know, Republicans have their own grievances with social media companies, but they're very different than Democrats uh, ones. And, you know, they feel targeted. Conservatives do. Trump and other influential conservatives, you know, they've been blocked from Twitter or Facebook for spreading misinformation about January 6th and the pandemic. This country cherishes the First Amendment. Is there an argument that we don't want to curtail speech too much? Of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, that there are those who argue that trying to regulate the truth on cable and the Internet would open up really a Pandora's box, that the First Amendment is one of the things that makes America great and that they certainly don't want the government deciding what's true or not. Plus, there's always reputational consequences. You know, people can judge for themselves what's a good source of information or not, you know, but others really argue that that notion is outdated, especially with the amount of conspiracy that's being believed we've seen over the last several years. And of course, the First Amendment has its limits. You can't defame or libel somebody. Um, and that's something we're seeing play out with this Dominion lawsuit, for example. But, you know, that's a company that says it was harmed. You know, the recourse for something as broad as damaging democracy, that's a much tougher problem. And we've been seeing that play out, certainly. And it's much more difficult to figure out. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the White House is threatening a nationwide ban of TikTok if the company isn't sold. Meanwhile, TikTok says a sale isn't the answer to the U.S.'s national security concerns. It's 829. A quick reminder that the WBOR app is an easy way to follow the news each day. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. Get the new WBOR app in your app store today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Economists appear divided on what the Federal Reserve will do at next week's policy meeting amid concerns about the banking sector. NPR Scott Horsley says some economists believe the Fed might leave interest rates alone, while others think another quarter-point hike is likely, with inflation in the U.S. economy still a problem. The Fed's got two jobs here, fighting inflation, of course, and safeguarding the stability of the financial system. And it's kind of a coin toss which one's going to get top billing when Fed officials meet next week. 
The recent collapse of California's Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York rattled Wall Street earlier this week. That was followed by concerns about Credit Suisse. The Swiss bank has since announced plans to borrow up to $54 billion from Switzerland's central bank. The state of Texas says it's taking over Houston's school district following allegations of misconduct by school trustees and consistently low academic scores at one high school. In a letter, the state's education commissioner says his agency will replace the district's school superintendent and its elected trustees. Kendall Baker is secretary of the district's board of education. Our students have suffered at the hands of leadership. It's now time for Houston Independent School District to refocus, regroup. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts has a new state veterans secretary. For the first time, the position is on the cabinet level. Governor Healy appointed Army veteran and ER Dr. John Santiago to the position. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on his plans. The legislature elevated oversight of veterans affairs to the executive level last year. It was one of several reforms in response to COVID outbreaks at the state-run homes for veterans in Holyoke and Chelsea that killed over 100 people. Santiago says the administration is committed to avoiding another incident like that. Words cannot describe the level of trauma and tragedy. There is still a tremendous amount of grief with the families who were impacted by it, the veterans still living there and the staff there. And we can't change the past, but we can shape the future. Santiago says he's impressed by the changes he's already seen at the Veterans Home in Holyoke. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Nearly a week after they were put in place, some of the speed restrictions on T-lines are being lifted. The MBTA says the entire Mattapan trolley line is no longer under those restrictions, although sections of that line may still be slower than normal. The green line is the only one with trains going slower across the entire line. That's so crews can conduct safety inspections. Massachusetts will need about 30,000 more health and personal care aides by 2030 to care for people living with Alzheimer's. That's the finding of a report from the Alzheimer's Association. Jim Wessler is CEO of the Massachusetts chapter of the association. He supports legislation designed to make it more attractive to work in Alzheimer's specialties. This legislation provides loan forgiveness for uh, geriatrician, neurologists, and neuropsychologists. We already have this program for other medical specialties, but, but we don't for these particular specialties that are so important for people who have Alzheimer's and dementia. Wessler says there are about 130,000 people in Massachusetts living with Alzheimer's. A man who served more than 50 years in a Massachusetts prison is finally free. Ramadan Shabazz was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison back in the 1970s. Former Governor Charlie Baker commuted Shabazz's sentence before he left office. The Boston Globe reports that Shabazz was freed from prison on Tuesday. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The Celtics beat the Timberwolves 104-102 to last night in Minneapolis. The C's next game is tomorrow on the road against the Portland Trailblazers. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the Winnipeg Jets. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Rays 9-1. to Clouds will move in throughout the day today, and temperatures will rise to the upper 40s. 
degrees. Tonight, it'll be mostly overcast and will fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, an overcast Friday with the high temperatures in the low 50s. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The Biden administration is demanding that TikTok be sold or banned nationwide. Yeah, that's correct. It's the latest U.S. move against a social media platform which is owned by a China-based company, ByteDance. President Biden is the second straight president to try this. The Trump administration also attempted to force a sale, although federal courts stopped that move. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us to explain why this time might be different. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Sasha. So this is the second administration to try to challenge TikTok over these national security concerns, essentially put it out of business. How serious is the threat this time? Yeah, it's quite serious. Now, beginning in the Trump administration, as you mentioned, a national security committee led by the Treasury Department has been examining whether Americans' data is safe with TikTok. Since laws in China require businesses to give government officials unfettered access, White House officials have been worried that Beijing could use TikTok to spy on Americans or analyze what is popular in the U.S. and then launch disinformation campaigns. While we haven't seen evidence of that happening, the fear is just as present in the Biden White House as it was during the Trump administration. And TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, has resisted calls to sell TikTok. But now the Biden administration is telling TikTok, look, you have to sell to an American company or be put out of business in the U.S. And what is TikTok saying to that? Yeah, TikTok officials say they are disappointed with this outcome, and they say they're going to stay focused on a major restructuring now underway to enact a firewall between TikTok and its Chinese parent company. They're calling it Project Texas because it involves an Austin-based software company, Oracle, which under this plan would host all of Americans' TikTok data. The plan also creates a new entity focused on data security, and it would be subject, all of Americans' data would be subject to regular independent and audits, but the plan did not go as far as having ByteDance sell off TikTok completely. And Biden officials are saying, look, if there's no divestiture, the plan is not going to be approved. And Bobby, if there is no plan approved and if TikTok says, no, you can't sell us, then what happens to it? There certainly is going to be some legal fights if that's the case. When President Trump tried to ban TikTok, federal courts halted it in part because it was a free speech violation. Remember, 100 million Americans use this platform to express themselves, to connect with other people, and sometimes to get informed about the news. So besides a legal battle, China could step in and try to prevent TikTok from being sold. It's unclear how the White House would respond to this, but federal officials could start taking steps to place TikTok on a blacklist that would make it illegal to do business with TikTok, which could be a big problem for the company. And then what does that mean for, as you said, the almost third of the country that uses TikTok? 
Right. In the very short term, not much, Sasha. I mean, TikTok is not going to go away overnight, but TikTok faces the real possibility now of being banned in the U.S. And if they are, who benefits most? Well, look, major social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. TikTok's disappearance would create a huge void and all of the established social media companies would then try to attract the displaced TikTokers over to their own platforms. NPR's Bobby Allen, thank you. Thank you. All right, this is the day when leaders of the French parliament are planning to call a vote on raising the retirement age. It would go up from 62 to 64. We've heard for weeks about protests against that and other pension changes. Our colleague Eleanor Beardsley was in the streets just the other day. Many schools are closed as teachers and students join the protest. Oil refineries are blocked, and truckers have started blocking roads in what's known as an Operation Escargot. Hmm. It means you drive slowly in every lane, block the highway, and force the traffic to crawl along at a snail's pace. It sounds so much more classy when you say escargot instead of yes. snails. Okay, that was more than a week ago, but the escargot have not stopped this vote, at least not yet. So we have called Noemi Biserbe, who covers French politics and foreign policy for The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Eleanor told us about these strikes uh, possibly going on for days. Now it's been days. What's it like in Paris now? Well, in parts of Paris, garbage has not been collected for over a week now. So more than 7,000 tons of garbage are piling up on the on the, the sidewalks, which mm. makes it actually difficult to walk on sidewalks. And uh, sure, it's not appealing and uh, the smell is not pleasant. I was talking to uh, uh, American tourists yesterday who, were, who said they felt heartbroken to see the, 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 the city of Paris in such a, in such a state. And um, Parisians worry also that this is going to attract rats who already, uh, well, outnumber Parisians. <laughs> Which happens with the urban rat population in any big city. But tell me, in spite of that protest, are the lawmakers really going to vote today anyway? So there will probably be uh, a vote at the National Assembly, uh, the lower House of Parliament this afternoon. But that is unless Macron decides to use a special provision of the French Constitution to bypass Parliament. Because basically, Macron no longer has a majority at the National Assembly. So he needs the support of uh, the conservative Les Républicains to pass his uh, overhaul through Parliament. And if he feels that he might not have enough votes, he could decide not to hold a vote at all and so and by, bypass Parliament. Oh, but wait, he would, he would impose his pension changes anyway and just assert his power to raise the retirement age himself? Yes. I mean, he would have to... He would have to decide to do that before the vote happens. He cannot do that once the vote has happened and if lawmakers vote against it. But basically, he can use a special, a special provision of the French Constitution to just bypass Parliament and raise the, the age of retirement. Yes, he can do that. The very fact that he would be considering that suggests that these protests have had some effect. There are some lawmakers that are just not willing to cross the protesters. Is that right? Yes, of course. I mean, the the... The protests are uh, has taken support in the National Assembly for for uh, the overall. And just very briefly, why do so many French people feel so strongly about raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, which Americans might be surprised by, since the retirement age here is higher? Well, two years is a long time. I mean, and people just do not want to work for an extra two years. And I think that for people who are close to retirement and uh, who uh, have already started making plans for the future, it's, uh, it's a big deal. It's uh, people uh, have a, a 
been planning for their pension, like for most of their most of their life. Noemi Biserb of the Wall Street Journal, thanks for your insights. So just for purposes of comparison, as we discuss France's retirement age going from 62 to 64, let's talk about retirement ages in other countries around the world. So here in the United States, you can retire whenever you want, but if you want money, you have to wait till you're 62 to collect Social Security. And you're always urged to wait as long as you can, because if you get till 70, you get the most Social Security. Okay, so sliding scale in the United States. A couple of others. Norway, the retirement age is 67. The UK, it is 66. Italy, 62. Bangladesh, 59. Wow. Now, I didn't know there's a difference in some countries with whether you're a male or a female and when you can retire. For example, Turkey, 52 for men, 49 for women. That's very young to not be working. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, the surgeon who blew the whistle on China's SARS epidemic cover-up has died at the age of 91. He remained under state surveillance until his death. In your forecast, it'll get increasingly cloudy today and temperatures will rise to the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy tonight and we fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a cloudy Friday in the low 50s. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org. The owners of the Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett now also own the nearby site of a former power plant. Wynn Resorts yesterday closed on its purchase of 43 acres next to the casino. It used to be part of the Mystic Generating Station. Wynn hasn't said what it plans to do with the land. There's speculation it could become the site of a soccer stadium for the New England Revolution. Boston-based Rapid7 is buying an Israeli cybersecurity firm. It paid $38 million for the startup called Minerva Labs. The deal is expected to boost Rapid7's growing ransomware prevention business. Unionized healthcare workers at the Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain will begin voting today on a new contract. The union reached a deal with hospital owners Mass General Brigham after months of talks and walkouts. Union leaders tell the Boston Herald the three-year deal includes pay hikes and expanded benefits for nearly 500 workers. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. In Jingyi Xiao's new film, an Asian-American high school student named Chang seeks to reinvent himself by learning to dunk a basketball. The dunk is such a powerful, I mean, it's like top three sports moves. You know what I mean? Like, there's a home run, there's the knockout in boxing, and then there's the slam dunk. Xiao's movie, Chang Can Dunk, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Twenty years ago, a surgeon blew the whistle on China's SARS epidemic. And because he did that, he was under state surveillance until his death at 91. NPR's Emily Fang looks back. Yang Yanyong was a doctor at a Beijing military hospital in March 2003, when he and other staff were briefed about the outbreak of a highly deadly virus called SARS, but were told to keep quiet lest the news detract from an annual political gathering in the capital. Infuriated, Jiang wrote a tell-all letter and mailed it to journalists. 
One of those who ended up receiving the letter was Susan Jakes, then a Time magazine reporter in Beijing. It was pretty short, but basically said two military hospitals, both the one where he was affiliated and one of the other ones that he knew that there were numerous people, including doctors and nurses, who had contracted SARS in Beijing and that some of them had died. He wrote that nearly 100 people had already gotten SARS in Beijing. He was so specific in the details that he was giving. I think I asked him, you know, why are you doing this? And his explanation was that it was just really basic for a doctor to believe that health officials needed to tell the truth. He was visibly angry at what was going on. Jakes published her interview with him and broke the news over the cover-up. And in that story, Zhang insisted on being fully named as a source. And he basically said, you know, I'm old. I didn't know at that point how many things he had been through in his life, but he basically said, I know what I'm doing. Jiang Yanyong was born in 1931 to a prosperous banking family in China's southern Zhejiang province. That background led him to be imprisoned and briefly exiled during the Cultural Revolution, a period of political turmoil in the 1960s and 70s. He survived that, and in 1989, because he was a surgeon at Beijing's number 301 military hospital, he treated dozens of victims of the June 4th Tiananmen Square crackdown. It was an experience that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Speaking out about the SARS outbreak made him a national hero and led to a World Health Organization investigation, plus the resignation of both China's health minister and the mayor of Beijing. But Jiang's life was soon to take a very different turn. Encouraged, he decided to pen an open letter the year after, calling on China's ruling Communist Party to admit it made a mistake by firing on pro-democracy protesters in 1989. After that letter, he was disappeared for months. Here's one of his daughters, Zhang Rei, then living in the U.S. in 2004. They're trying to use this detention to pressure him to admit something he did was wrong, especially the letter he wrote this year regarding the uh, Tiananmen massacre. Thus began nearly two decades of on and off again detention and house arrest. Yet Zhang continued to speak out about government corruption and low benefits for military veterans. Here is Zhang speaking to a Hong Kong television outlet a few years ago. Before June 4th, we shouted chants against state profiteering and corruption, didn't we? We wanted democracy and transparency, but the problems we opposed then weren't even as severe as they are now. He paid a high price for that outspokenness, much like Dr. Li Wenliang, the eye doctor who tried to alert his colleagues of COVID-19, another deadly virus, nearly two decades later. This week, even news of Zhang's death was highly guarded, though two family friends confirmed his passing to NPR. Plainclothes police monitored his funeral in Beijing on Wednesday so that paying last respects to the whistleblowing surgeon was not possible. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how the government can encourage banks to avoid risky behavior. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. Rupa, good morning. How are you uh, Uh, from Washington, D.C.? You must be very glad to be back in the warmer climes. A uh, little warmer, yes, yes, down here. But I have a preview of our show and a plug for Bostonians up by you. Oh. Uh, my colleague Robin Young is on our show, going to speak to Adam Gott- 
Gopnik, the writer for The New Yorker. He has a new book on mastering things like doing magic tricks, drawing, making baking bread and boxing and ballroom dance lessons. So that'll be a fascinating conversation. We do want to say that Adam Gopnik is going to be at WBUR City Space. It's live event space on Monday. He's in conversation with Bob Oaks, former Morning Edition host. Uh, I know a legend in town. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who are interested in that, pay attention to that. We also say goodbye on our show to a wonderful comedy on HBO called Southside. It's being canceled and a sampling of new music that folks at the South by Southwest Festival will be hearing in the next few days. A few things on our show today. What a great mix. Thank you, Scott. Of course, yep. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.50. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. It'll slowly grow cloudy today, and we'll have temperatures in the upper 40s. Tonight, it'll be overcast and in the mid-30s. It'll stay cloudy for a Friday, but will be warmer in the low 50s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 851. At least this morning, authorities in Europe have contained one bank problem. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Markets are calmer today after Swiss authorities stepped in to backstop a major global bank, Credit Suisse. Today, that bank's stock is up 20 percent. My U.K.-based Marketplace colleague, the BBC's Leanna Byrne, has more. In the early hours of the morning, the Swiss central bank and financial regulator moved to reassure investors it would help, offering Credit Suisse a $54 billion loan. Its strong support for the bank reflects the lender being a systematically important bank both in Switzerland and globally. Credit Suisse itself says it's taking decisive action to strengthen its finances. These assurances seem to have helped for now. The bank's shares are on the rebound. The question is whether investors are scrambling to find out if there are any other banks with equally major problems. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne for Marketplace. Stock index futures in the U.S. are mixed. S&P futures are down two-tenths percent now. Nasdaq futures are up a tenth of a percent. Now for a teachable moment on what economists call moral hazard. It's the worry that people are more likely to drive like knuckleheads if they have car insurance, but the banking system version. Part of the response to the runs on Silicon Valley and signature banks was to try to calm the rest of the system by allowing all banks to easily borrow money against their government bond holdings. Bonds are quite safe, but they're hard to unload in a hurry when interest rates are going up as they are now. I'm referring to the Federal Reserve's bank term funding program. Program. But will the Fed saying, banks, we've got your back, encourage them to take dangerous risks? Let's get some insight into this by turning to Joseph Wang, chief investment officer at the investment advisory firm Monetary Macro. Thanks for helping us. It's a pleasure to be here, David. 
just so people understand, this new system is, hey, bank, if a lot of depositors come by for their money at once and you can't handle the sudden flow, you banks can borrow from us, the central bank, automatically to cover things like the bonds in your portfolio. But they're government bonds. If you hold them to maturity, they'd be worth the full amount. Isn't this Fed system just helping those banks buy some time? Well, one of the basic principles of any bank is to manage interest rate risk. Now, a bank has to manage both their assets well so that they don't have too much interest rate risk, but also their liabilities as well, such that you won't have all these depositors come and ask for their money back at the same time. And they have a lot of tools to do this. And as you can see, as the Fed raised rates, the banking system as a whole was fine. But to your point, interest rate risk is an important component of any asset management. What you're doing is you're basically socializing that away. And you object to it philosophically, but it sounds like you also object to it in a practical sense. Why is it a problem beyond the philosophical objection? What you're really doing right now is, in a sense, you are allowing banks to not have to worry about their interest rate risk. And that encourages, I think, irresponsible behavior. The way that a market economy works is that if a business does a good job, we want it to succeed. And if a business does a bad job, we don't want it to succeed. But what we're doing right now is we're saying that you can go and, you know, you don't even have to care about your interest rate risk at all. And what we're suggesting too is you don't have to worry about your depositors as well because the Fed or the government will bail them out. I can see. I mean, if Bank X is poorly run and has made risky choices, you would like to see it get a comeuppance. But the thing with banking is there can be this contagion and you could get other people worried about other banks that are practicing safer practices affected by the first bank's predicament and it ruins it for everybody. You're exactly right. Bank contagion is very real because in part because there's a big psychological component to this. If you're a depositor and you see one bank fail, you might get worried and start to withdraw money from your own bank and your own bank, even though it's fine, it just can't handle all that. So this is an age-old problem, and it was a particularly big problem in the great financial crises when we actually had many important banks fail. But we've made the banking sector a lot safer. There have been tremendous, tremendous changes to the banking sector. So I think the banking system today is much stronger than it was before. And so it would have been able to withstand the failure of a regional bank without having runs. Joseph Wang is Chief Investment Officer at the investment advisory firm Monetary Macro. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, David. Beyond Silicon Valley and Signature Banks, a third mid-sized one is being scrutinized carefully by depositors and investors. The credit rating of First Republic was cut down to junk status yesterday by both two rating services. Today, Bloomberg News, citing unnamed sources, is reporting that among the options First Republic is considering is finding a larger rival to buy it up. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment of reflection every weekday. Another big story this week, the Biden administration is proposing the first standards aimed at making drinking water safe from so-called forever chemicals, also known as PFAS chemicals. They're found in everything from waterproof clothing to now toilet paper. Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports. The proposal would place enforceable limits on forever chemicals for the first time, according to the EPA's Eric Bernison. This is really a historic moment. The agency has been working for some years now to develop this proposed regulation. 
Bernison says the same properties that make forever chemicals so useful also mean they linger in the environment and in the human body and can cause serious health problems, including cancer. I want to applaud the EPA for coming out with sensible limits to these forever chemicals. Yvonne Taylor is with the environmental advocacy group Seneca Lake Guardian. It's based in the New York State Finger Lakes, which provide drinking water to one and a half million people. Fish in many of these waters contain high levels of forever chemicals. So if it's in the fish, it's in our drinking water. But the American Chemical Council, an industry trade group, says it worries about compliance costs, which could be in the billions of dollars. For utilities, supply chain concerns also loom large, says Stephanie Schley of the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators. Are they going to have the materials needed to get all of this up and running in time for the compliance date of the rule? Nevertheless, she says the EPA's proposed standards provide a new clarity and consistency. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. And the 10-year interest rate remains low by this year's standards, 3.44% now. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, and we are from APM. American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll be in the upper 40s today under skies that will grow cloudy as the day goes on. By tonight, it'll be overcast with temperatures falling to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, still cloudy but warmer in the low 50s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Congressman Seth Moulton. He's reintroduced a bill that would provide Black World War II veterans and their descendants the GI Bill benefits they were denied. He joins us to talk about that, the recent bank failure, and more on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.